Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Death has its own presence about it. Death has this uh, incredible void as well as some type of sacred presence. It's something that's uncomfortable. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I've got bad news for you, Johnson. We're all dead. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. I never want to marry. And need to talk about more. Money isn't real, George. Doesn't matter. I'm Anna Sale. At the top of the steps, we'll be right in the funeral home itself, so we'll just sneak her on upstairs and go from there. So. Okay. Caleb Wilde leads me into the Wilde funeral home through the back. I've never entered a funeral home through the back door, so first thing, I ask Caleb to show me around. My mom might be at the top of these steps. This is a family-run business. The building sits at a corner of Main Street in Parksburg, Pennsylvania, a community of just over 3,600 people. As we make our way to the second floor, I notice the place has the feel of an old home, because it is. My grandfather was born in this very room, and uh, that chair is where he takes his nap, and he often says that he'll probably die in that chair, so <laughs> I don't know. See, when you're around death this much, you talk about this thing, and it's not morbid. Just below us, at the foot of the front stairs, a crowd is beginning to gather in the foyer. He was a younger gentleman uh, who died of cancer. The connection is my dad knew him from church. Is the music something that's being played live, or is it um, a recording? That'd be nice. Sometimes it is live. This is a recording. It's an instrumental that we bought from Walmart. (laughs) It's, It's hymns. Caleb's family has been doing this for six generations in Parksburg, going back to his great-great-great-grandfather. The family made cabinets before the Civil War, which led to making coffins, and the rest is history. Caleb's grandfather is 83 and running this funeral downstairs. The funny thing is, is in the funeral industry, uh, you reach your prime state when you're older because you know the people that you're serving. In my grandfather's case, he's burying a lot of his friends and family. The other nice thing about being older is that people have more freedom or more willingness uh, for you to be tactile with them. You know, for me, when I go up and I, I touch somebody, it can be weird. Uh, but for my grandfather, people are, are very willing. Uh, so he'll 
come up behind uh, maybe the widow and, and uh, pull them in around their waist and give them a hug. It's just something that I, I, I can't do. People don't feel that comfortable with me, probably because I'm younger. I'm more of the behind-the-scenes person. A lot happens behind the scenes in a family funeral home. Picking up the deceased from the hospital in the middle of the night. Caleb also mans the phones or responds to a 24-hour answering service. If it's a death call, they'll call us directly and then we'll call the family right back. He helps customers plan their funerals, too, before there's a death. This is the casket showroom. The caskets range from about $800 for a coffin made of particle board up to solid cherry for $6,000. It's kind of like the Mercedes. (laughs) This is the most expensive casket? That we have, yeah. How many of these will you sell in a year? We will probably sell about one or two a year. But the delicate work of embalming, the removal of bodily fluids before a viewing or burial, Caleb usually doesn't do that alone. It's rare that I'll embalm a body without being proctored uh, by my grandfather, who likes to look over my shoulder and make sure that I'm doing everything right, or my dad comes in and checks. Caleb is 33. He has two sisters, but he's the only one working full-time in the family business. I am also a blogger. I write about my experiences uh, in the crossroads of death and life. The blog, called Confessions of a Funeral Director, has gotten Caleb some attention. He's done a local TED Talk and appeared on national news shows like 2020. So Caleb is the heir to a somber family business and a child of the Internet. Sometimes those identities clash. Everything's going good with the movie star here. This is Caleb's dad, Bill. He both ribs and appreciates his son for the attention he's getting. He's a great writer. Yeah, he is. Do you read his stuff? I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't lie. You read some of it. Yeah, I don't read all of it, probably. One in ten. But I do. I do read it. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, the older generation, yeah, he he don't care even to look at it. But okay, well. Some people have to work. So yes, of course. Sense. It's nice to meet you. Nice meeting you guys. That work is about death every day. We're on call 24-7. And for Caleb, it can be hard being, as he describes himself on Twitter, the last person to let you down in Parksburg, Pennsylvania. The service gets underway downstairs, so we slip out the back of the funeral home. I'm just going to shut this door. Okay and move through the rows of cars and pickups that crowded into the driveway. A lot of the vehicles are familiar. Caleb knows nearly all his customers and their families, sometimes going back generations. People don't move in and out of Parksburg much. Since it lacks industry, people can't afford to move out, so they kind of live with their parents, and and that becomes a generational home. I'm the sixth generation here at the funeral home, and there's a lot of other families who can trace the roots back even farther than I can. Do you remember the first time you were involved in a funeral of someone you knew personally from town? Um, the one that I recollect the clearest was my grandmother who passed in uh, 92. Um, that's kind of my first memory. Yeah. When a family member of, of a funeral director dies, does yeah, the funeral director run the funeral? It, it, yeah, it's just, it's really complicated. It's that uh, intersection of profession and personal life. 
and you just you just kind of stand around and you don't know whether to shake people's hand because they're comforting you or or to direct them and the embalming process is hard uh you know that's a consideration that uh, each funeral director makes on a personal level do you personally embalm uh your brother your spouse uh, sibling etc or do you hire out uh, when my my mom's grandfather died I and my dad embalmed him and that's something that we felt we should do and and we did it it's like the last thing that you can do for them and when my grandmother passed away suddenly in 92 my grandfather was unable to and not that he should have but uh, my uncle was the one who was involved with that process is it something that was part of your training as you were growing up from either your father or your grandfather? Uh, not explicitly. And nobody ever told me, look, you're, you're going to have uh, stressful days, extremely stressful days where you'll see dead children and exposed to things on a regular basis that people should only be exposed to on a, on, uh, you know, once in a lifetime. Uh, and nobody ever told me that it's going to affect you negatively and that you're going to have to learn to cope. Um, there is very little uh, training at all. Um, and so for me, I've had to dig in, into different psychology books and attempt to understand what I was experiencing uh, because I, di- I didn't have any explanation uh, in my schooling, which which I think was a shame. I mean, if, if funeral directors would have been taught to cope better, I think there'd be a lot less funeral directors who leave the industry because they're burnout, which, which happens a lot. I forget the statistics. I think it's uh, 70% of funeral directors leave within the first five years. So it's a pretty high burnout rate. So you have outlasted the trends. Yeah, and then once you're in it for 10, supposedly you're in it forever. So, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I guess I've outlasted the trend. So now I'm damned to be a funeral director the rest of my life. <laughs> Is that really how you feel? Uh, no, sometimes I do. Employment statistics in the funeral industry vary depending on the source. But the challenge of combating burnout does come up regularly in industry trade magazines. Joining the family funeral business wasn't Caleb's first choice. Right out of high school, he worked abroad for a Christian humanitarian group. He couldn't make enough money, so he came home. But he's always got an eye on what's going on outside Parksburg. You've been checking your phone while we've been together. Are you, have you been looking at Twitter? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just making sure the, uh, the death universe is, is stable right now and, and nobody's hating me. It can be dicey talking about death on the Internet. Caleb regularly posts jokey pictures to his 20,000 Twitter followers, like a photo of a pickup in a McDonald's drive through with a coffin in the back. Other posts bring tricks of the funeral industry out into the open. He hasn't always gotten the tone right. Can I ask you about the tweet about um, <laughs> yeah. your last screw? This is your oh, last yes. screw. That was the most controversial one within the... Uh the funeral industry. This is your last screw, and it's a picture of what's called an AV plug. Um, A stands for anal, V stands for vaginal. Um, Some funeral directors will use it so the fluids don't come out of the deceased. So, yeah, so I tweeted that. um, You know, kind of one of the principles that I have that I 
try to go towards is transparency. I think there's a, a cloud of secrecy within the funeral industry. Um, how that transparency plays out uh, is something else that, you know, I, I'm learning in what areas I need to be transparent in and in what areas I shouldn't be. Uh, so, you know, I, I try to keep on top of that because I, I don't want to irreverent yes and sensitive no. I, I don't want to be insensitive. Coming up, more on that sense of isolation that drew Caleb to social media in the first place. Does it make you feel less lonely? It does. It does. To to realize that there's other people out there who have death as a defining part of their life. How death has been a defining part of your lives. That's what you've been telling me about in stories about the funerals you remember. Jenny Lee Adrian sent the story of her grandmother's funeral in South Korea in 2009. Jenny grew up in Wisconsin, still lives in Milwaukee, so she had no idea what to expect. I never thought I would be sitting in a cubicle watching my grandmother's body being incinerated and hearing the wails of other people viewing cremations in their small rooms. Her family arrived by charter bus to the crematorium. Other charter buses were there for other funerals at the same time. All these crowds met up when it was time to eat in the crematorium's cafeteria. The room was filled with families, slurping their way through oxtail noodle soup. Eating made everything normal. I felt comforted just by focusing on grabbing noodles with my chopsticks. Looking back now, Jenny says that day seems to have something to do with her decision to start cooking for a living. I also asked for your stories about living alone, and a lot of you have chimed in with the lessons you've learned. We're collecting these for a future episode, so keep them coming. Email to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, James McBride, the National Book Award winner and author of The Color of Water. You know, when you're young, all you want to do is get laid and all that shit. You get older, you know, good eight hours of sleep, that work. That's all right, you know. You, it's possible. You adjust. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you, you, you know, you learn what's important. Love's important. Companionship's important. Sex is good to have. But if your heart's not full, then, you know, sex is like drinking beer. And that first one's good. By the ninth one, you know, you're poisoning yourself. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Caleb Wilde grew up in an independent Protestant church in Parksburg. 
When he came back to his hometown, he got licensed as a funeral director and went to seminary. When we finally sit down together, he tells me he's working towards a Ph.D. in religious studies now on top of his full-time work. I love being in academia. I'm a nerd. Uh, so, How would you say that working in a funeral home for 10 years, how has that affected you? On a personal level, it's... It's, it's overexposed me to death, uh, and it's created burnout, depression. At the same time, though, it's allowed me to see beautiful aspects of humanity, compassion, empathy, tolerance. On a faith level, it certainly changed the way that I look at God. A close experience with death changes us. It changes all aspects of our being. It either solidifies what we already believe or it creates a loss where the beliefs that we held to before are called into question and reshaped and, and redefined. I don't think you can have a neutral experience with death. And you said you've, you've struggled with depression. Yeah, yeah, I have especially the first couple of years at the funeral home because I was working seven days a week and it just got to be too much. I was starting to have compassion fatigue where I just didn't feel the same degree of compassion for people. I knew that, I, that there was a problem uh, when my temper would flare up and so forth, the common symptoms of somebody who's nearing burnout. So I tried to deal with it in healthy ways through exercise, seeing a psychologist, and, and going on, on meds. Was that something that anyone had your fa in your family had done before, seeing a psychologist? Not that I know of, yeah. And it might just be my personality type. I tend to be more introverted than the rest of my family. It's an industry that has extremes where you'll see beautiful things Families that haven't spoken for years come together and reconcile, or the community come together and and not only pay for a funeral, but start a college fund for a, a young boy who just lost his father. You'll see those things, and then you'll see uh, suicides and murders. And uh, so you have these extreme contrasts that can pull you in different directions, and it's impossible not to be affected. It's learning to acknowledge that it's a difficult job and finding positive and healthy coping mechanisms, which is what I'm still attempting to do. Can you tell me a bit more about how what you call overexposure to death, how that's affected your faith? I think in... In many ways, uh, death is the muse of religion. And so for me, uh, death has called into question a lot of my assumptions. Has it made you have less faith in a sense of order in the, in the universe? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm at a place now where I'm comfortable in silence. I used to want to speak towards death, have words towards death. 
And what I mean by that is, is answers, where I wanted some type of framework that makes me feel comfortable with my mortality. And maybe there isn't. Maybe when we talk about death, all there is is silence. You've been going through this as you're working in a family business. Mm -hmm. Has that been difficult when you have a, a very specific faith background that you have shared with your family and this is leading you to a different place? Yeah, I, yes and no. I'm, you know, some of my shifts and beliefs I've kept quiet uh, because I know that they would upset members of my family, but at the same time, it, it hasn't been difficult because this, uh, this is something that I feel if I didn't address the questions and find a way to feel comfortable in the silence, that I wouldn't be able to survive. You said you've been relatively quiet about how your feelings and, and beliefs have changed as you're speaking into a microphone. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so how do you think about that? Well, I, uh, yeah, my, I, I doubt that you know. There's cer certainly, uh, I'm selective with what my parents hear for the most part, um, and. Uh, in, in one sense, I would say that I'm more agnostic than I ever have been. At the same time, I think what often happens in secularization is that we assume that we can exist outside of a tradition. And I don't know that we can do that. I think that tradition and whether or not we have any affiliated religion, there's a deeply held beliefs within our community that make us interconnected. And that is something that I still hold to and uh, is an anchor for me. Yeah, it's community. Yeah, yeah. So. When I moved to New York City, I would walk to the grocery store past a funeral home in Brooklyn, and I became obsessed with the idea of that I, if I died in New York City, I have no idea where my body would go. Because it was like this question of where's my home now, yeah. you know, that's what you're speaking to, like in the community where you live and serve, there's that sense of yeah. connectedness Yeah, and it's valuable. Yeah. And I'm afraid sometimes in our attempt to assert our independence and our individuality, when we remove ourselves from traditions, we remove ourselves from community, it does make death seem like a larger specter. Is there a particular death that you worked on? I don't know. Do you call them clients? <laughs> yeah. What's the word? It depends. Um, there was... When I first started after I was licensed, uh, I woke up early in the morning. I turned on my TV because I had heard the sound of helicopters outside of, of the place we were living at the time. And there's enough of them where I thought, well, this could be something serious. So I went downstairs, I turned on my TV, and sure enough, there was uh, on 
the screen of Philadelphia uh, news station had come out to cover a fire, a trailer fire that had happened uh, about a mile away from my house. And at that time, they were reporting that two young children and two adults had perished in the fire. And my first thought was, you know, this is terrible. And then my second thought was, well, there's a real possibility that we could be the ones who uh, take care of these individuals who had perished. And sure enough, I went to the funeral home and we had uh, gotten the calls, two young children, I believe they were both under the age of 10, and then their grandparents. So the following day after the coroner had done his... uh, um, his autopsies and so forth I was the one who went to the hospital to to pick up the children and when I got back to the funeral home I was also the one who was to determine whether or not these children could be viewed and uh, so I unzipped the body bags and they were actually both in the same body bag and that was a uh, it was a, a defining moment internally as well. It did something in me where I began to recognize the part that I play uh, as a funeral director in the grieving and the death process. The family was fighting because the one part of the family was Wiccan Another part of the family was Christian, and they were trying to determine what type of service they would have. And it, it got to such an intense level that we had to involve the cops. Hmm. So the day before the funeral, we had the cop there, uh, one of the cops, and we were going over some of the logistics of what would happen if there was a fight. And uh, I collapsed. My heart was racing really intensely, and they took me into the hospital. It ended up just being exhaustion, and I was given orders to stay in bed for a couple of days. And the next day, I, I got up, and I put on my suit, and I came to the service. Looking back, it was a moment where it wasn't conscious, but I saw a need, and I placed the need of others above my own needs, which at the time was rest. Looking back, I see that as a very pivotal moment in my uh, professional life where something internal clicked and it became more about the people that I was serving uh, than my my own well-being. When you came to the service that day, Do you remember talking to your father or grandfather when you walked through the door? I don't. Um, I remember them being surprised that I was there because they they knew I had just been in the hospital and they knew that I wasn't supposed to be there. But I quickly fell into place and did whatever I could do uh, to help the service uh, run smoothly. I don't remember what I said. I just remember them being surprised that I, I showed up. So they were surprised, but there was nothing really said, and then you started, you yeah. just took your place and started doing the work. Yeah, because in some sense, I think they they understood. 
Caleb Wilde lives in Parksburg, Pennsylvania with his wife, Nicole, and their son, Jeremiah. Wilde's funeral home averages about 250 funerals a year. That's about four services a week. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Chris Bannon, Merritt Jacob, and Jim Griggs. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky for his help with this episode. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. We're still collecting your stories about living alone for an upcoming episode. Send an email or record yourself telling your story into your smartphone's voice memo app and send that in. The email address is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. Death, Sex, and Money is on Facebook. If you like us, like our page. And if you're new to the show, we're glad you found us. You can check out all our episodes on our website, deathsexmoney.org. One more thing about Caleb's work. The community is small enough that he serves everyone, not just people from his family's church, but also Latinos and African-Americans who live in town. Caleb says it's taught him a lot. I appreciate that because I enjoy seeing different perspectives and how they deal with death. It's celebratory. There is not only an openness but an encouragement to show your emotion. It's a lot healthier to to have an open space for for your emotions and and for uh, your grief instead of a closed space, which seems to be the case with most of us whites. (laughs) I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.